0: You're listening to The Good GP, the podcast for busy GPs.
1: Hello and welcome to The Good GP, the education podcast for busy GPs. Today on the show we have Dr Donna Mack who is a GP and a public health physician. Donna, welcome to the podcast.
0: Thanks, Tim. Lovely to be here.
1: And you have a few roles, so it's worthwhile explaining some of the roles that you have.
0: Yeah, so I have a few roles. I work as a sessional GP at the M Clinic, which is a sexual health clinic for gay and MSM. That's run by the WA AIDS Council. I also work at the Department of Health in Western Australia in communicable disease control as a public health physician. And I also teach medical students, so I'm the domain chair for population and preventive health at the School of Medicine, University of Notre Dame.
1: Fantastic. Well, thank you for coming on the podcast today. So today's topic's really interesting. We're going to talk about syphilis, which is... For a lot of GPs it's perhaps a a condition that we don't see lots of so a a really important one to get some good information out there and I was thinking I haven't perhaps learned about syphilis since medical school so a really important topic.
0: Yeah so I guess for the generalist doctor they don't really see that much syphilis which is all well and good because it is very much a preventable disease and I think if we were all doing our jobs well in terms of prevention and clinical practice we should see a lot less of this disease. But the truth is that in Australia and definitely in WA, there are probably three outbreaks of syphilis going on right now as we speak. So the first one that I'd like listeners to be aware of is the one that's affecting Aboriginal people in remote communities across most states of Australia, actually. So this started in Queensland in 2011, it marched across the top of northern Australia into the Northern Territory, into the Kimberley region of Western Australia. Since then, it's moved to more southern parts of the country. And in Western Australia, it is now in the Kimberley, in the Pilbara, and in the Goldfields, affecting Aboriginal people mainly from remote communities so if you see someone who is from one of these areas it's a good idea to keep this in mind because they probably should be offered testing at a rate that is higher to most other people the other outbreak that has been going on for some years now is a general overall increase in syphilis in gay men and men who have sex with men that has increased but in the last couple of years has kind of stabilized really And we're looking at numbers of around 250 cases a year in metropolitan Perth. That's another group that has high rates and always worthwhile asking the question, do you have sex with men if you see a male patient? Because they may or may not identify as being gay or MSM. But if you ask the question, do you have sex with men? They might say yes, and that will open up an avenue to take more history and to do more targeted testing. And then the other group which is experiencing increased rates of a much more recent nature, so probably in the last year or so in Western Australia, is heterosexual people. And the worry about heterosexual people in the general mainstream metropolitan population is that we don't know how to target them because they just seem to be everyday normal people and we have no handle of knowing who are the target groups who should be offered more frequent screening or who we should be taking probably more detailed sexual histories from. So the worry with syphilis in heterosexual people, and this has happened in the Aboriginal outbreak and also in heterosexual people in Perth, is congenital syphilis.
1: We're really finding that there are very specific groups in the population that contract syphilis. They're sort of unique and different groups and that the traditional groups that probably a lot of GPs would be aware of, which is the Aboriginal community, mm-hmm. particularly remote and rural Aboriginal community and the men who have sex with men community, but now more so we're seeing an increase in frequency in the heterosexual community of syphilis.
0: And this is not unique to WA. This has been seen in New Zealand, in the large mainstream heterosexual population. It's also been seen in Canada, and to the extent where in some of these health districts in these countries, people have introduced third-trimester screening for syphilis as a routine thing, which we don't do here because we haven't really had the numbers to be making that worthwhile. But it may be something that we need to start considering as these countries overseas have done.
1: So I guess your message would be, think about it potentially in anyone, basically. It doesn't have a demography as such. Potentially, it could be across any sort of population.
0: Potentially, it could be. But I think especially in Aboriginal people from remote areas and in gay and MSM, we should definitely be thinking about it. But yes, I think in anyone, you do need to keep it in the back of your mind because Patients don't have a huge awareness of it, which is fair enough, considering that a lot of doctors don't have a big awareness of it. And it presents in so many different ways. It used to be called the great mimicker. It still is the great mimicker.
1: So that was another question that came from my practice, which was who should be screened? And I guess if we're thinking in that way, probably everyone should be screened for bloodborne viruses and infection.
0: We know that if people say that they have recently had a partner change, that of course is a good reason to offer them screening. We know that, on the whole, young people are more likely to have STIs and blood-borne viruses. But with this increase in syphilis, we have seen cases in people who are older than you and I, Tim. Yeah, so it's not just that 15 or 16 up yeah. to 30 or, or 35 age. Worryingly, we have noticed that the heterosexual cases of syphilis that we're seeing in Metropolitan Perth, the vast majority of them, like about three quarters, are occurring in people of childbearing age. So the potential for vertical transmission is very real.
1: And the screening for pregnant women, I mean, I think it's easy to look at someone and think, oh, they don't need screening, but the risk of harm is so high for congenital syphilis that it just has to be done every time, basically. It
0: does, and I don't think there would be any excuse for not doing syphilis testing at first trimester booking when you see someone. The question is, how do we identify people at high risk to offer a second test to and in the remote regions where this is a problem with Aboriginal people, we have got guidelines in place where we say very clearly that women should be tested at booking, at 28 weeks, at 36 weeks, at delivery, and six weeks postpartum. And if you're not working in those regions but you see women from those regions, and as you would if you were in some of the tertiary referral centres here, then the same applies. So that sort of history taking to find out well, where do you normally live? Is really important so that they can be screened at those more frequent intervals. For women who are not from those regions, it can be difficult to identify them. Certainly, asking about partner change is important. I think sometimes we might assume, probably falsely, that women who are pregnant and who may or may not have a regular partner, that they may not change partners while they're pregnant, and it's probably not. A sensible assumption to be making mm. about people what people do and don't do when they're pregnant. It's more difficult if the woman has not changed partners, but her male partner has partner changes now. Very hard to get that sort of a history from a woman. But if she suspects that that's the case, perhaps that is a good reason to offer her screening without causing marital and relationship problems.
1: Yeah, handling it in a sensitive way is the tricky thing, but it needs to be done. And I think a lot of GPs wouldn't think about continuing to screen throughout a pregnancy. Mm. So that's a really great point. I guess the other worrying trend would be perhaps a tendency for people to not think of an STI screen as having blood tests involved. Yes. So, you know, I've certainly seen this trend of just doing urine testing or swabs as opposed to the more complete testing, which is including bloodborne infectious diseases. And I guess that's an easy thing to drop off and remembering that this is an infection that's really has serious implications. Yeah.
0: And I think especially for your pregnant women, because the ones I've looked after anyway, they are highly motivated to look after the health of their baby. So if you couch any question or suggestion in the terms of this is for the health of your baby so that we can do the best possible for your baby, they usually will do almost anything.
1: Absolutely. So my next question is an interesting one because I look at syphilis it's a very treatable condition and it's been around for centuries. There are historical figures who've died from syphilis, yeah, you know, over centuries. <laughs> So why haven't we eliminated syphilis?
0: It's a really good question, Tim, and I wish I knew the answer to it, but I don't. So as you say, it's been recorded since biblical days, syphilis or something that was very like syphilis. It is a very primitive organism. It does not develop sensitivity to antibiotics in the way that things like gonorrhea or mycoplasma genitalium do. So from those points of view, it's actually potentially really easy to treat. The United States CDC about 15 or so years ago, had an elimination of syphilis campaign. It clearly failed. Syphilis is in very high numbers over there, especially among their IV drug-using population. And I think perhaps one of the things that syphilis has on its side is that it goes through these phases of infectivity. So when someone gets syphilis, if they're exposed to syphilis, typically it takes about a month for them to get symptoms, but it can be anywhere between 9 and 90 days. Mm -hmm. And when they get that first symptom of syphilis which is the chancre they may or may not know it's there because it's painless and so if it's say on the cervix or inside the vagina or even hidden in the labia you wouldn't know it's there for a man if it's under the foreskin or something like that they might not know it's there it's painless and it goes away without treatment so some people might just think oh well that's gone away now and it didn't really feel bad at all so I'm fine Then it will move on to the secondary stage, at which it's infectious again. And so it's got potentially up to two years to be infectious and to transmit on and off. So if we're thinking about how do we find people who are potentially infectious that's not that easy to do because we might ask about partners and do partner notification contact tracing but asking people about partners in the past three months which is what we do for gonorrhea and chlamydia we find often that's hard enough they may or may not remember they may or may not tell you if it's something that they potentially got to two years ago that's really very difficult
1: absolutely yeah
0: Perhaps that has something to do with its ability to persist. Yep. And also because it's the great mimicker that people might see the doctor, but the doctor may not think to test them for syphilis, say if they present with neurosyphilis-type symptoms, which can occur in early stages of syphilis. They might present with cranial nerve palsies or uveitis I don't think many people would be thinking first thing syphilis. Yeah, syphilis. First, yeah. yeah
1: absolutely yeah you say that and it's in every textbook for these conditions yeah. it's, it's listed as the condition to think about isn't it mm. or one of the conditions to yes. think about so but it sits outside the radar in lots of ways yeah
0: but people have so much to think about yeah and so often people don't remember or if you see a syphilitic rash you know there's the classic rash which is on the palms of the hands and the soles of the feet but it's not always like that it can be all over the body it can be just on the face
1: I think it's the frightening thing is is that you could be missing it fairly routinely so
0: yeah and I think perhaps because the treatment is injections so there again, people probably want to have a bit more confidence in their diagnosis before offering empirical treatment. It's a bit different to your gonorrhea and chlamydia, where the empirical treatment is tablets, and mm. you might be less worried about offering that to someone up front before you get their diagnosis.
1: So that's another question. Why do we need to give injectable treatment? Is it just the concentration of drug required to eradicate? or
0: It's the best treatment. So... Syphilis is really a systemic disease from the onset and it's 100% sensitive to penicillin. Within a few days, people will be non infectious after they have their first dose of penicillin. So that's really important. If someone is truly allergic to penicillin, there's actually good reason to get them desensitised so that they can have the best practice treatment for syphilis. If you can't do that and penicillin is absolutely contraindicated they can go on a course of doxycycline but it's not as good a treatment if i had syphilis i would want the best treatment and that is benzathine penicillin and another problem that we run into is that benzathine penicillin is not something that's commonly available it's from not retail stopped, pharmacies yeah. no yeah. so Sometimes we find that people have trouble getting hold of it and then they think, oh, well, could I use benzyl instead? Mm. Well, they can't no. because, well, they could, but they would need to use benzyl penicillin every four hours for 14 days, which is clearly not
1: Doable. Uh, doable, yeah. Yeah.
0: Because benzathine penicillin lasts for a long time in the body. So that's why we need it. But it's a very effective treatment. And if anyone is in Western Australia and they have trouble accessing benzathine penicillin, all you have to do is to call your local or regional public health unit and they will help you to source it and even give it to you for free if that's what it takes because it's so cheap, it's worthwhile for the health department to get this out to GPs if they're having any trouble at all in getting treatment. The other option is send your patient to one of the public STI clinics, like at Fiona Stanley or Royal Perth or Frio, and they can get the treatment straight away.
1: Right, great. Well, let's just talk about the standard classic cases. So what is the classic presentation, the textbook presentation of syphilis?
0: The trouble is that people don't present like that. (laughs) So we could talk about the standard textbook presentation of first you get your shanker in primary syphilis and then perhaps a few months later people get more systemic symptoms like flu-like symptoms, aches and pains, fever, they might get a rash all over. But in reality, the majority of people that we see with syphilis have no symptoms mm. and they are diagnosed on their blood test, so on screening. their serology. Yeah. 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 So yeah, it could be screening in the context of they just want to check up because they recognise they've been at risk. It could be antenatal screening. It could be in the context of someone who is a contact of an STI. It may or may not be syphilis. Yeah? Yeah. But if you're a contact of one STI then you need to be screened for all of them because STIs travel in packs. Yep.
1: Yeah. But if we think about it in terms of clinical syndromes, that if you're not screening, and that you, you really want to be testing for, it would be, you know, obviously a shanker-like lesion. Ulcers. Yeah, yep, definitely
0: ulcers. genital ulcers. Or these days, where a lot of people have a lot of oral sex, and syphilis is very good at transmitting through oral sex, we should be suspicious of ulcers around the mouth, That's the true. tongue, the lips. Yeah. yeah. And we've got good tests. If you see someone with an ulcer, take a PCR dry swab for it, send it to the lab. We've got good tests here in WA, which does like a multiplex test, and it'll test for syphilis, herpes, which are the main two that an ulcer is likely to be. And thrown in for good luck is also donovanosis, but we haven't actually seen a case of donovanosis or had a notification for many years now. But there is that multiplex test that
1: tests for all three. Yeah, look a lot of GPs wouldn't be aware of that actually, so that's a, a really an interesting point to make. Okay. So outside of the sort of genital or, or mucosal presentations is the rash? Yeah. Then there's neurological syphilis, yes. which in essence could be any central neurological or peripheral Anything. neurological presentation. Then things like fever and systemically unwell people, I yeah. suppose. So yeah. as you say, it's the great mimicker.
0: Yeah, and then the other thing is the lata, which is one of the skin manifestations of secondary syphilis. So they could be mistaken for genital warts, but they tend to be quite large and they're very moist and they are probably a bit nastier looking than your average genital wart but they would be in the same areas that you would expect to find genital warts put on your gloves because they're swarming with spirochetes
1: wow yep (laughs) good tip and then just the rash i know there's lots of different rashes but there's a couple of classic rashes really aren't there Uh,
0: so the classic rash on the palms of the hands and the soles of the feet so you know like it's red it's flat but it can be anywhere yeah and so the red spots Yep. be anywhere, all over the body
1: It's an erythematous rash, yeah. it's basically polymorphic and sort of Like a lot of rashes we see in general practice, it's just hard to explain. Yeah, it's hard, yeah.
0: And you would see other conditions that present with a very similar rash. So it's not really pathognomonic that we could say, that's syphilis. But I think if someone has got a rash on the palms of their hands and the soles of their feet, that probably is something that we would all think about. Yeah. Yeah.
1: Okay, and in terms of then going on to do testing, so blood testing is the, the the gold standard.
0: Unless someone has a lesion that you can swap. Yep. I think if they've got an ulcer, or even if they have, like, condyloma lata that, you know, you, you think you can swab it, by all means, swab it, because you'll get the PCR back quickly.
1: Yep, and just going back to my medical school knowledge, which still rattles around in me, <laughs> there is an issue with false positive results of syphilis testing, isn't there? There
0: is. So this is really with serology testing. Yep. Whenever you are doing a test, if you're doing it in a population with a low prevalence of disease, which in your average heterosexual population would be I would say a lowish prevalence of disease you're always going to come up with false negatives so probably the best thing to do in that case is to repeat the test usually that settles at once and for all you know if it's a biological false negative or something usually when you repeat it again it's fine and mm. then you can be reassured but because syphilis serology testing is not that easy to interpret for the average generalist because there's two tests that we test for so here in WA the testing protocol is first they test for a treponemal specific antigen and if that's positive then they will go and check the RPR which is a non-specific test. The treponemal specific antigen if it's positive, it only says that that person has ever had syphilis. Exposure, yeah. It doesn't mean that they have syphilis right now that is infectious and needs treatment. It basically stays lifelong if someone has ever had syphilis, and it's the RPR, which is a very non specific test. That's the one that tells us do they have active syphilis now yep. and do they need treatment. So, a bit of a tricky thing to interpret, and I think it's probably a bit much to expect generalists to know the ins and outs of interpreting syphilis but we're lucky in WA and you know most other states in Australia if you need help with interpreting syphilis you ring up the clinical micro in the lab where you've sent your test to or especially if you're in one of the regions where there's a lot of syphilis going on the public health staff are really helpful because they've through lots of practice Mm. and experience they've had to learn how to interpret syphilis
1: serology and finally let's talk about treatment i mean you've kind of talked your way through it there's no avoiding the needle with syphilis that's the message really no i think
0: if you want best practice treatment you get the two needles one in each buttock benzathine penicillin 1.8 grams in total
1: it's a little bit uncomfortable it's very painful
0: have you ever given one of these injections i
1: have yes yes and it's
0: like injecting toothpaste into someone it's I feel for them as I'm doing it. I warm it up. I, sometimes I get them to warm it up. I get them to you know, roll it in between their palms of their hands. At least they feel like they're doing something for themselves so that it's less painful before it goes in. But I don't think there's any it, way it's, out of it.
1: The thing that strikes me is that it's a big injection. It needs to go in quite deep.
0: Yep. Don't yeah, Two mils of a toothpaste-like substance in each buttock. People often go away. And they're quite sore.
1: They're bruised. I agree. Yep, but that is the gold standard treatment, so, yeah. and it gives you certainty. And that, that's the same treatment throughout pregnancy. Absolutely, yeah.
0: yeah. That's another thing about syphilis is the treatment in pregnancy is no different to the treatment outside, outside. of pregnancy. The difference is in your follow up, because, of course, if someone's pregnant, you're going to follow them up a lot more closely. And follow up their baby As opposed to your non-pregnant person Who you still have to follow up Because you want to make sure that that RPR is coming down In the right way It may not be coming down It's rare that the treatment doesn't work Usually it's because people have been reinfected again And it's usually because The partner notification or the contact tracing Hasn't been done completely And they've gone and had sex with that same person
1: Yeah, so reinfection is an issue, isn't it? Oh,
0: it's a major issue yeah Yeah, and it's a lot of work I think treating someone with syphilis and doing all their follow-up all that good work gets undone if the contact tracing or partner notification doesn't happen well because people they tend to move in the same sexual circles and they will just get it again so it's really important
1: well that is just a very comprehensive discussion of syphilis I think that's given lots of really helpful information practical information about syphilis Donna, thanks so much for spending the time with us today.
0: Thank you very much.
1: Hi, this is Tim from The Good GP. Thanks for listening to our episode on syphilis. After the episode, Donna Mack contacted me just to clarify the dosage for treatment of syphilis. The treatment is benzathine penicillin and the dosage is 2.4 million units, which is usually given as two syringes of 1.2 million units. If you've got any questions or need help, contact your local health department for further assistance. If you're interested in more information about syphilis, Donna and I are recording a webinar which will be available through RACGP. I do hope you can join us. Thank you.